0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The two men from Colorado who want to be president take the debate stage tonight. Is this the defining moment for John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett?
1: I don't think I'm going to attack anybody. It's never been my style. It's totally unpredictable what's going to actually happen.
0: Then some political fun. Listeners vote on the shorthand for Hickenlooper and Bennett. Benalooper? Hickett? Later in the show, crypto-Jews will meet in Denver next week. Their ancestors were forced to convert to Catholicism during the Spanish Inquisition. Generations later, they're discovering their Jewish roots.
2: It's like going home. It's just like being in the place that I was always born to be.
0: Plus, Denver's equivalent of Woodstock was a gas. Tear gas, that is.
3: I thought I was having a heart attack or something. I had no idea what this was.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. This week, America's getting better acquainted with the people who want to unseat President Donald Trump. Night one of the Democratic debates touched on health care, guns, immigration. Sometimes the crosstalk made it incomprehensible, a reminder of just how many candidates are in this race. Tonight, we'll see on stage the two Coloradans who want to be president, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper. They'll be alongside much better-known candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. So could two hours tonight in Florida determine Hickenlooper and Bennett's fate? CPR's Anthony Cotton begins our discussion.
1: Less than a week ago, most of the Democratic field was in South Carolina. On Friday night, more than 3,000 people strained to navigate a fish fry held on the grounds of a local museum. The lines were still bulging when one after another the candidates began taking the stage. How are we doing out there, South Carolina? My name is John Hickenlooper. I'm a, a small business owner who took that
0: scrappy spirit into being governor of Colorado. And I want to give you just a
1: few It's examples. unclear if any of the words from any of the candidates really break through. It was more white noise than White House to the attendees. What the exact appetite is for Bennett and Hickenlooper may become more apparent following their appearance in Florida. So far, neither has had much of an impact, polling at about 1% nationally. How they go about changing that is, well, a matter of debate. Jamie Harrison is a candidate for the U.S. Senate from South Carolina.
2: You had a governor,
4: you got a senator. What are some of the legislative proposals that they pushed, that they supported, in order to really make a difference in the lives of some of these folks? And I think this is the opportunity to showcase that.
1: Bennett and Hickenlooper have spent a lot of time in early primary states trying to do that very thing. The problem is, being a policy wonk isn't very telegenic. And at the debate, there will be a one-minute limit for responses to questions. It often takes both of them that long just to clear their throats. It's an equation that Bennett is yet to solve.
2: That's what I'm trying to do, is figure out how to reduce it all down to its essential components.
1: But that's only part of it. And then, of course, you have to,
0: it's totally unpredictable what's going to actually happen, because you don't know what the
1: other people on the stage are going to do, and you don't know what the journalists are going to do, so you've got to be, just very well prepared. Preparations have been a very involved and intense process. Both of the Coloradans have run mock debates using volunteers and staff members to stand in for other candidates and moderators. They have to stay in character, asking and responding to questions the way the real person would over the course of numerous two-hour skull sessions. The goal is to make sure their guy is ready for anything, Hickenlooper says. There's a lot of information that's going to have to squeeze into my head because I think At the first debate, you're expected to be ready for pretty much, you know, incoming from any direction. But even if you're prepared, and if you can appear charismatic while still being concise, it may not matter anyway. Hickenlooper's communications director, Lauren Hitt, is realistic about the likely outcome.
3: It's just such a small window of opportunity. There's only, at most, going to be one person that really hits it out of the park in the debate that's able to kind of get the the break they need to use that line they're preparing or to run that play they've been thinking. So there are be plenty of people who go up on that stage and just do fine, but don't necessarily distinguish themselves.
1: One potential way to grab the spotlight and maybe go viral is to go after someone. Bennett and Hickenlooper will be sharing the stage with a couple of the early frontrunners, former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Recently, Bennett has said the 76-year-old Biden is out of touch with today's Democratic Party, and Hickenlooper and Sanders have engaged in a Twitter beef with regards to socialism. While Lauren Hitt says the campaign hopes to indeed have a Hickeyan moment, he says it likely won't be from an act of aggression. I don't think I'm going to attack anybody. It's never been my style. Now, I don't think socialism is the answer, and I'm going to say that loudly and clearly when, when the topic comes up, and I'm sure it will. That doesn't have to be an attack on anybody. For both of these candidates, Hickenlooper and Bennett, who have been focusing so much attention on places like Iowa and South Carolina, the real value of the debate is just the chance to introduce themselves to more of America. I'm Anthony Cotton, CPR News.
0: Well, let's get some national perspective on what might be in store tonight for Hickenlooper and Bennett. Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty is in Miami. She covers national politics. Hi, Karen.
5: Hi, how are you doing? doing well you know, as, it, as, it, as it happens, on my flight down here to Miami yesterday, Senator Bennett was sitting in the seat right behind me so he was uh, he spent the flight with his head buried in his uh, in his uh, briefing binders.
0: I say okay, he was doing homework on the plane in other words. <laughs> yes. uh, what stood out to you from last night's debate? Do you think anyone won the night?
5: You know, it's like this early and with this crowded of a um, stage, it's it's really hard for any one candidate to win. Uh, certainly, you, they can do damage uh, if there's a gaffe or, or something. But I think that the performance that you really ought to look to from last night uh, was, was Julian Castro, the former housing secretary, who... Hmm. I think, came into this debate with a very clear strategy. He was going to press his immigration plan. He was going to be very aggressive. He was going to be, you know, make sure that he broke into the debate. For for a candidate who is really languishing in the polls, as most of them are, uh, that is what you were looking for in this debate. Not necessarily, it's not going to be a make-or-break moment but it will just be sort of serving notice that you have to be paid attention to.
0: So if you were Hickenlooper or Bennett watching last night's debate, you might take a cue from Julian Castro.
5: I think so. I think so because what you want people to do is come away, obviously a knowing that you are running, but also having some sense of what your rationale for running is. And, um, you know, for, well-known candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Biden and Bernie Sanders, you know, people are already familiar with them. They know kind of what they're about. But most of these candidates in the field, that is their big challenge.
0: Along these lines, one of your colleagues, Amber Phillips, wrote a story about how Joe Biden may be a focal point tonight. He's the leading candidate, according to most polls, And Michael Bennett recently said that Biden is out of touch with today's Democrats. Similarly, there's Hickenlooper and Sanders and socialism, which you wrote about after Hickenlooper said that wasn't the answer for Democrats. Do you think either man should try to tug that thread in an attempt to get an aha moment against a more popular or well-known candidate? Uh,
5: I think so. I think that, um, you know, Senator Bennett, is probably going to try to, you know, press the the idea that he is a candidate of the future, as opposed to Vice President Biden. Um, and if you listen to what Governor Hickenlooper has been saying out there, including in this uh, remarkable appearance that he made in California some some weeks back, it was not only that. Socialism is not the answer, but he's also going to point to the kinds of things he did in Colorado and say, look, I I was actually able to achieve a progressive agenda. And, um, you know, he, he's trying to find some way to to get people to focus on that, on sort of what is doable and who's the doer who can do them.
0: Did Donald Trump come up more, less, or about as much as you'd expected?
5: He came up very little. Um, I, I think that, uh, oddly enough, I think Mitch McConnell was discussed more than <laughs> Donald Trump was. Uh but right now, especially these early debates, these candidates, their biggest challenge, at least for most of them, is defining themselves for and in introducing themselves to the public. Now, tonight could be different, and I wouldn't be surprised because we do have two very well-known candidates. And, of course, Vice President Biden launched his campaign with a video uh, of Charlottesville. So we may—I wouldn't be surprised if we were hearing a lot more about Donald Trump tonight.
0: Is the debate uh, that both nights—is this an elimination stage?
5: Um, I think we're not quite to the elimination stage. This really is—I think everywhere I have gone— You'd be surprised at the size of the crowds that even the lesser known candidates are getting. I think right now, Democrats are very, very enthusiastic about this race. I think they are very open to getting to know a lot of these candidates. I think come the end of the summer, perhaps they might like to see some of the less viable candidates step back. And we will certainly see that, too when the qualification criteria for the debate gets different, debates get stiffer and stiffer.
3: Oh, okay. But
5: my impression now is that, is that people are pretty patient and just pretty interested in hearing what all these people have to say.
0: What do you think the balance has been so far uh, between policy and personality? What did you see in night one? What, what would you hope for in night two?
5: Um, I saw. I thought last night was a lot of policy. Um, you saw, for instance, uh, distinctions among the candidates on uh, single payer health care, you know, Medicare for all, yeah. whether you would abolish private health insurance. You saw uh, Castro and O'Rourke really go after each other, but not on the larger immigration questions, but really on the fine points of, of how they would achieve things. Um it's been it was surprisingly substantive.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure the format does the candidates much justice. I mean, you've got to sort of fit this in between commercial breaks and get 10 candidates in. But I found the raise your hand if to be particularly effective. It was a good way of distinguishing candidate from candidate. Do you agree?
2: Wasn't that
5: interesting? I know. Uh, so often when people have done this in the debates in the past, it's come, back, it's come out as almost like gimmicky, mm-hmm. but I, I did think it was very effective last night.
0: Uh, I I want to ask you about what you think the ideal candidate looks like in terms of going up against Donald Trump.
5: If, you know, the polls, if you look at them, what is screaming out of the polls is, for Democrats, the ideal candidate is the one who's most likely to beat him you really don't see a lot of you know i i will i will you know cross this candidate off my list if he or she doesn't agree with me on these 10 positions um i think democrats at this point just want somebody who can convince them that that they are viable and that they will they will be able to perform on the stage next fall against i mean fall after next against uh president trump
3: yeah
0: Without naming who that is, what are the attributes, just briefly, that you think advance someone like that?
5: Um, uh, you know, there's the, there's the school of thought that you need somebody who can essentially take Trump on in his own terms and, you know, go blow by blow with him in the kind of combative stance that, that he is known for. I'm not sure of that. I really think that perhaps somebody who comes off as a, you know, having a very sort of stable demeanor, somebody who can kind of keep their cool under that kind of pressure, may be the contrast that, that voters are looking are looking for.
0: Well, Karen, to quote the moderators last night, that's time. Thanks for being with us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Karen Timolte is a columnist for The Washington Post covering national politics, and she's in Miami for the two nights of the Democratic presidential debates. Tonight's field includes former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and Senator Michael Bennett. Now some political silliness. With Bennett and Hickenlooper on stage together, we ran an unscientific poll on Twitter asking what their Bennifer name would be. Bennifer was the moniker bestowed upon power duo Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. So what's the conjunction of Hickenlooper and Bennett? For the more than 250 people who voted, the least popular choice was Hennett. Hickett didn't do well either. Bennett Looper came in second. And the winning twinning is... Booper. Booper got 55% of the vote. Some people didn't like any of the options and offered their own. Twitter user Josh Mackrock says Beckenlooper, clearly. Elliot Goldbaum suggests Jickel Bickenloopit," which just rolls off the tongue. There was the equally clunky Hicken, no, what is it? Hicknet Loopben. Yeah, Hicknet Loopben. And a sick burn from Stu Small who tweets, voters outside Colorado refer to them the same way. Who? People have become obsessed with tracing their ancestry. The Internet and home DNA test kits fuel that. But for the descendants of Africans taken to the Americas on slave ships, it's not as clear cut. A CU Boulder professor studies a region in present-day Nigeria to pinpoint the origins of enslaved families. And Henry Lovejoy, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me. Help us
0: understand why it's so challenging to trace the ancestry of people taken from Africa on slave ships.
3: So when we're dealing with pre-colonial sub-Saharan African history, we're really dealing with a lot of cultures and people who don't have a written history. So piecing together uh, maps and other things that we take for granted has been very challenging uh, when we bring these, these different histories together. What about the record keeping
0: of slavery itself? Does that hold more information?
3: Absolutely. So we have a lot of uh, records related to the business of the transatlantic slave trade. uh, But this generally silences the history of the people who were put on board these slave ships. So the combination of no uh, orthographies, no written history with sort of the silencing of slavery really creates this problem of figuring out when and where people came from in Africa and where they went in the slave trade.
0: Okay. You're studying and mapping really just one of the regions of Africa involved in the slave trade. Tell us just a little bit of the history of that region.
3: So, this region, uh, like many places in the world, was involved in slavery uh, in this period. Uh, there was also a lot of different conflict that was taking place. Uh, you know as most of the world experiences conflict so i've just been taking uh, a lot of information from the the scholarship to extract all of this geopolitical information to be able to plot conflict And put it alongside into maps as it relates to the slave trade on an annual basis.
0: So that's fascinating. You're looking at the strife that would have been in any particular region in Africa prior to slave ships arriving and trying to build that story, which I gather helps you understand then those who were uh, abducted, sent on slave ships,
3: absolutely, so so really, when you begin to look at changes to the geography over time, especially in the formation and abandonment of different places because of warfare, you really get a sense of regions of where people are coming from on an annual basis so when we 're talking about this this migration moving over to the Americas, we can really begin to better understand where people are coming from at different periods. Okay. And pinpoint
0: further and further back, perhaps, someone's lineage. So d- do tell us a bit about this region in particular. What's it called? What's it like?
3: Uh, so this is southwestern Nigeria, so it's predominantly occupied by Yoruba speakers. Uh, you know, there's about 20 to 30 million Yoruba speakers today. So this region underwent, uh, the, it's, it's formed by numerous kingdoms, and there was a major slave trading state uh, in that grew through the slave trade and expanded through its use of cavalry to capture people and then, through a series of jihad movements as well as external conflict, this kingdom collapsed very rapidly over a twenty year period, and tens of thousands of people boarded slave ships who then had huge cultural impacts in the Americas. so you might have heard of things like santeria which is widely practiced in the United States uh, and this mainly comes from Cuba and Brazil, but this is really the the big issue when we're talking about cultural formations in the Americas.
0: Ah, so understanding the culture that came with, uh, we talk about the Americas. So my understanding is that ships that might have come from this part of what's now Nigeria weren't necessarily off to
3: uh, the, the colonies or to the United States, but off to Brazil in many cases. Absolutely. So when we talk about the the transatlantic slave trade, the trade to the United States is actually very small compared to other places in the Americas, particularly in the Caribbean and within Brazil. This is really important. I don't feel actually like I picked
0: much of that up in school. I think so much of the focus is on the slaves that arrived in the U.S.,
3: uh, absolutely. I mean, what we're talking about the the African slave trade. We're talking about twelve and a half million people who boarded slave ships. About ten of them, ten million, reached the Americas, and of the difference are those who died during the middle passage. So when we're talking about the United States, you know, very small islands in the Caribbean actually had more enslaved Africans arriving than all of continental North America. So we're really talking about a very complicated history that's rooted in slavery, that's been silenced because of this racial discrimination. I gather then that in Brazil and throughout the Caribbean, you probably have people searching as well for their roots and their ancestors. Abs- yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, this is, racism is not just a United States problem. It's a problem that exists throughout the Americas, and so people are constantly searching for where their ancestors come. For, for white people, uh, you know, such as myself, I, I have a very good understanding of where my family came from within Europe. But for many Africans, because of slavery and their descendants in the Americas, there's this very big disconnect. So my research is really trying to pull that together and help people understand this, their ancestors.
0: Are you far enough along to say, I can help an individual family now trace their roots back further or is that the work of, a, of an entire career?
3: I think that's the work of my entire career. Okay. So we're talking about... Get, get, get busy! Yeah, we're talking about a very small <laughs> quadrant of Africa in a 20-year period. So the exciting thing with this is that this could scale out to all of Africa during the entire history of the slave trade. So the more people can know about where they might have come from in the Americas and the period in which they are, this can really help trace back to certain lineages within Africa. Are there many people like yourself working on this? Uh, There's there's tons. I mean, this is a huge question within my field, you know, when and where people came from, when and where they went. Uh So we we have tons of resources related to the slave trade, the ships, the business of it, but very little about internal Africa. Uh, Very briefly, wouldn't DNA be useful in this? Absolutely. I think there's a huge potential here to line up what we've been learning in terms of slave ship departures and arrivals in the Americas. Americas, and also the mapping work that I've been doing with DNA analysis. That could help confirm some of
0: what you're investigating. Henry, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me too. He's Henry Lovejoy. He studies Africa and the slave trade at CU Boulder. Join me, Anne Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado Public Radio podcast called On Something.
6: America's public enemy number one is drug abuse.
0: On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal, and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Do you like your health insurance? It's a key question raised by the first Democratic presidential debate last night. It's also a question I asked on Twitter as I was watching, and there were lots of responses. Jason Verdon says, quote, With my previous employer, no. With my current employer, absolutely. I have great coverage, very low premiums. Karen Trout of Boulder hates her insurance. She thinks I ought to ask Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and the British. Speaking of, Ann Lindsay of Denver used to live in the U.K., where she says she dealt with much less paperwork, but she generally likes her Kaiser-Medicare Advantage plan, says everything is nicely integrated. Medicare was generally popular among the folks who responded. Jonathan Robb shared this. Thankful I have insurance for my family, but navigating network coverage is frustrating. Stopping to talk about payment before and immediately after the birth of our son was frustrating and chilling. Twitter user Boss Butcher says, I do like my coverage, but I have union insurance, which most people don't. I'm totally for universal health care. We need to head that direction as a nation for sure, end quote. And for Darian Sloan-Wilson, a family health plan is expensive, $1,700 a month, she says, and then it costs a fortune when her family actually needs care. But without insurance, quote, we risk death and bankruptcy. Just some of your thoughts about health insurance, and tune in tomorrow for analysis of Debate Night (laughs) 2. Some Hispanic families in Colorado have a secret, their Jewish heritage. These so-called Crypto-Jews are descendants of conversos, Jews forced to convert to Catholicism during the Spanish Inquisition 500 years ago. That's when Judaism became a matter of life and death. A Jew who helps a converso return to his father's faith will be burnt at the stake. That is from a play that will be performed next week at a meeting of the Society for Crypto-Judaic Studies, taking place in Denver. Donna Medina of Greenwood Village will also be there to deepen her understanding of her own crypto-Jewish identity. And Donna, thank you for being with us.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Your mother had memories of your grandmother doing things that you now know were Jewish practices. Practices like what?
2: Yes, some of the practices was a closed door with two candles. They were singing and chanting. My mother was only three, and she thought it was some sort of uh, strange worship or...
0: Like a seance.
2: Or a seance, and it wasn't until I had talked to the rabbis I understood... They were actually celebrating Shabbat.
0: They were lighting these candles on, I gather, Friday nights.
2: Friday nights,
0: And this is a sign of welcoming in the Sabbath for Jewish people. Were there other rituals uh generations back that you now understand to be Jewish?
2: Yes. When I finally got my apartment, my mother gave me a mezuzah. I was supposed to put it out, and she never told me what to do with it. And of course, we didn't know what to do with it. And it had a paper behind it. So I threw the paper away and just put the little sign up in oh. my wall. <laughs> I thought it was pretty. But now I know I threw away the blessing. It's a house blessing. We So I had a rabbi come and replace that and put it in its proper place.
0: Right. So mezuzah is a sign that you place on your doorpost with a small scroll in it that has a prayer that is meant to identify yourself proudly as Jewish. So this was um, a ritual that you engaged in but didn't fully understand at the time.
2: That's correct. There were many of those. She was only three when she had them, so we only knew what a three-year-old would know uh, about these things.
0: Your grandmother died when your mom was just three, and uh, she went to live with other family. How did you find out you are a crypto-Jew?
2: I had some friends that I knew. I visited them, and I used to go to their house we would have Shabbat together. We would have celebrations together. They would teach Torah to me. One day, the father came over and he was a rabbi. And he told my parents that he thought we were descendants from the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition.
0: Had you ever heard anything of this?
2: No, we didn't even know what the Spanish Inquisition was. We huh. had no idea. So he sent me to another rabbi who was a scholar in Jewish history. And they confirmed that they felt the same thing about us, and that's what started my journey on this.
0: Looking at your lineage, just for a sense of time, you're in your 70s today? Correct. And this began to reveal itself when you were in your
2: 40s. It was.
0: It's been a long journey, huh? It's
2: been a long journey.
0: What do you consider yourself today?
2: I am an Orthodox Jew. The way this goes is if you come from that line, you have a choice as a descendant, you can choose where you want to go. And I chose to go where my ancestors were. Did
0: that mean you had to convert, or were you accepted already as a Jew in the eyes of the synagogue?
2: In my particular synagogue, there There were just three things they wanted from me. One was to be able to be sure I'm celebrating Shabbat, to do my mitzvahs, and to be sure that I'm at Torah studies.
0: So they wanted to make sure that you were engaging in the rituals. Correct. But there wasn't the process, as uh, converted Jews have to go through, of asking and asking again and going through a long education process.
2: No, there wasn't. There was just a group of my friends that got together— and they asked me some questions. They asked me uh, if something happened to the Jewish community here where they would all die, I have a choice not to be in that group. And I said, I, I, if they perish, I perish.
0: Oh, they, they asked you, would you die with us? Yes. Oh, my, that's a heavy question.
2: That's a heavy question.
0: And it's an important answer you gave. Yes. Uh, in some ways, do you feel... Less Jewish than other people have you faced, I wonder, some amount of skepticism from other Jews?
2: I haven't. I've been very accepted in the Orthodox group that I'm in. I will tell you, growing up we did. We didn't have a synagogue that really wanted uh, Sephardic Jews at that time. So we spent a lot of times with just friends and uh, being in Jewish communities
0: But I didn't think you knew you were Jewish growing up.
2: We were around uh, Jewish communities all the time. My mother was brought up in the Araria area, which is a community. Then they moved to the uh, Northwest section, which is another Jewish community. Of
0: Denver. So what you're telling me is that your family, as you were growing up, was always close to Jewish people, but you didn't think of yourself as Jewish.
2: No. It's fascinating. I'll tell you why. It's because when the, the rabbi asked me, are you Jewish? I said, No. And he said, what's your name? And I told him, and then he says, you're Jewish. And I said, no, we're not, because to us, you, if you went to synagogue, you were Jewish. And we, you
0: didn't do We that. didn't
2: go.
0: Uh, were you made fun of as a kid?
2: My mother was. One of her stories is when she was about three years old again. They were out playing, and a bunch of the kids in the playground came out and threw rocks at her and called her a Christ killer. And she didn't know what that meant. She was only three, but now she knows what it is.
0: Oh, my goodness. I have to think that moment of, of having connected the dots, of having the light turned on, all of these rituals and all of this experience, it must have just been transformational for you.
2: It was. I was able to find things about my family that I didn't know things that my aunts and uncles didn't know. They knew it was around, but they didn't know it was Jewish. They didn't know it was our heritage.
0: So does the rest of your family think of itself as Jewish?
2: My family, immediate family, is now recognizing that from the time that the rabbi had come to talk to us, the thing to me was you can learn about our heritage and our traditions, but don't go off the deep end. But I did. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: went off the defense. Okay, that is to say, you fully embraced this identity. I fully
2: embrace it, and it's like going home. It's just like being in a in the place that I was always born to be.
0: You are part of the effort to save uh, in Trinidad, Colorado, the historic Temple Aaron uh, that nearly closed just a few years ago. Uh, The temple has celebrated 130 years of existence. Just briefly, before we go, how does the future look for the congregation there? Are, is, is it sustainable?
2: I think the uh, historical part of it is happening very well. We're getting it documented. It's being saved. People are thinking about it. The building and itself. The is building quite itself. A story. We don't have. We don't have a congregation. We have people who are interested there, and the people who want to donate and keep it preserved are there.
0: So it's touch and go.
2: It is touch and go, but I have a feeling its process is slow, but it is, looks like we're going to keep the building.
0: Thank you for being with us, Donna, and uh, helping us understand your road to figuring out your identity.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Donna Medina of Greenwood Village has discovered and embraced her Jewish heritage. She'll be a part of the Crypto-Judaic Studies Conference in Colorado next week. Expectations were low when CDOT started its bus service nearly four years ago, but it's been popular with commuters and even in rural parts of the state. That might just tell us whether there's an appetite for more public transit, perhaps commuter rail along the Front
4: Range. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner has this story. It's a busy weekday morning at the Union Station bus concourse in downtown Denver. Jamie Grimm of Fort Collins has had a longer commute than most of the people here. Not that she minds.
3: This is great. I don't even really notice the commute anymore because I get on the bus and I just start reading or I start watching a movie or I just kind of zone out.
4: Most days, she catches the bus staying. It takes about 90 minutes one way and costs about $20 round trip. She's happy to pay it.
3: The days that I do drive my car, I probably, between tolls and parking, I probably spend about 25 bucks, including gas.
4: Not to mention the mental fortitude it takes to sit in traffic on Interstate 25.
3: It's pretty awful actually.
4: Jamie Grimm is exactly the kind of person CDOT had in mind when it started busting in 2015. Michael Timlin runs the bus service and says it's part of a strategy to try to alleviate congestion.
6: You know, more and more people are coming to the conclusion that we just cannot keep pouring concrete.
4: Timlin says making roads bigger means more people will drive on them, meaning traffic won't necessarily get better if roads get wider. And that'll get even worse as the state's population grows. So CDOT is putting more resources into other ways to get around, like busting. The entire system costs about three and a half million dollars a year to run, a tiny fraction of CDOT's overall budget of more than a billion and a half dollars. But that's still enough to be controversial. Republican legislators even voted to defund Bustang in 2016, saying the money spent on it and other things like bike lanes was a waste. This was Senator John Cook of Greeley back then. It needs to be used exclusively for the construction, maintenance and supervision of public highways in the state and not... For these other gimmicks. Senator Larry Crowder also voted to defund Bustang. He's changed his mind though.
5: Since then, we have been able to
6: reinforce transportation, and I've actually uh, turned into supporting the Bustang.
4: That's partly because CDOT has looked beyond commuters to connecting rural areas like Crowder's District in the San Luis Valley.
0: And we don't have taxis. We don't have Uber.
4: Jim Collins is mayor of Los Animas, a town of 2,000 on the eastern plains. It's on a Bustang route to Colorado Springs. Collins says his residents often need to travel for medical appointments. Bustang has made that easier and helped fill an urgent need.
1: So, if a person is here and they can get to a a regularly scheduled Medicaid appointment, it's significantly
0: cheaper than if they don't make that appointment and they have to go to the emergency room. And as importantly,
1: it's life or death.
4: Timlin says the route has about 200 riders a month. Fares don't make up what it costs to run the buses, but Timlin says making money isn't the point.
1: We really wanted
6: to reconnect the people in the rural areas to their urban service center, Uh, you know, so they could do their medical appointments, go do shopping, whatever, and be home for supper the same night.
4: Timlin says "Bustang success means the agency is looking to add routes to places like Estes Park this fall and to ski areas in the winter. Beyond that, CDOT wants to spread even farther into rural parts of the state. Is a goal to essentially have service down every major highway or between every regional center in the state? That that
6: certainly is a goal. Uh, I don't know if we'll realize it in my lifetime or not, but that is our goal, yes.
4: More immediately, Timlin says the most popular routes on the Front Range will get more buses. The busiest route to Fort Collins has about seven round trips a day. So these buses aren't doing all that much to alleviate congestion yet. Eventually, though, Timlin says he wants to quadruple the number of buses on that and other routes. Sandra hagen Solon is spokeswoman for Fix Colorado Roads, a business-backed advocacy group. She says Bustang has proven to be worth expanding, with one caveat. It
6: cannot be... Um, pursued at the expense of the continued investment in roadways that serve as the foundation of our broader transportation infrastructure and
4: and network. CDOT's Michael Timlin says more service could help develop demand for future train service along the Front Range. That idea for passenger rail from Fort Collins to Pueblo, it's still in the early stages and would likely need voters to approve more funding. That could cost billions versus millions for bus staying. And that vote could be a test to see if Coloradans really are serious about leaving their cars at home. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And a note for transparency, underwriting for Bustang, which is paid
0: for by the Denver Regional Council of Governments, is heard on CPR. Woodstock, arguably the most famous music festival of all time, took place 50 years ago this August. It was advertised as three days of peace and music. Well, two months earlier, Denver had its own version, the three-day Denver Pop Festival at the old Mile High Stadium. For 15 bucks, concertgoers were treated to some of the biggest names in music, including Iron Butterfly, Creedence, Clearwater Revival, The Mothers of Invention, Joe Cocker, and the headliner, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, heard in this audience recording. Hey! Despite the groovy lineup, it was not all peace and love. Police used tear gas against hundreds of gatecrashers who thought the music should be free. Some of that tear gas drifted over the performers. It's History we'll explore now with G. Brown, executive director of the Colorado Music Experience. Hi again, G. How are you, Ryan? Doing well, and... I understand you were there on the first night of the festival, 50 years ago today. What do you remember?
6: Not a thing, really, uh, in terms of the music. I was 15 years old, and uh, a parochial school byproduct uh, told that anyone with long hair was a... hippie communist, basically. So my folks didn't know I was there. Uh, I was filled with anxiety and just navigating it. And this was the day without the tear gas. Right. (laughs) The the only one of the three. Perhaps a less memorable day of the three (laughs) days. Were you a hippie communist in disguise? Uh, I think it was kind of uh, latent. (laughs) Latent. The Denver
0: Pop Festival was put together by a little-known concert promoter at the time uh, named Barry Fay. He was 31 years old at the time. Uh, He would go on to become a major force in the music business. When you look at his career, how big a
6: deal was this pop festival to his future? It was his shot at the big time. Uh, Interestingly, there had been the idea of festivals in the air at the time. But uh, Fay wouldn't have done this thing had the city not prohibited him from doing his concerts at the old Auditorium Arena in downtown Denver. He had promoted Iron Butterfly – in February, and some kids had broken windows downtown, so they weren't going to let him use that facility. Faye didn't want to use the Denver Coliseum because that capacity was closer to 11,000, didn't think he could fill it, mm. so he came up with the idea of getting all the acts together and putting on a show at the Mile High Stadium. Do you remember how many people that sat? At Mile High? Well, for a football game, that was my experience. Being a young Broncos fan, you could get uh, probably 70000 in there. Size Uh, uh, Maybe that was pre-expansion. They set up the stage on the infield dirt. It was in the baseball configuration back then, too. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's... Well, things
0: went smoothly that first night of the festival, which is perhaps why you don't remember much. (laughs) Um, That was not
6: the case on the second night. Tell us what happened on night two. There had been, a, in retrospect, a radical element in town. Uh, people like the, uh, members of uh, STS, Students for a Democratic Society, radical politics of young people. This was a time, Ryan, of protests, right? Civil rights demonstrations, uh, students against the Vietnam War. And all of it came to a ferment here in Denver. This is when the counterculture kind of arrived in full force. Right, and music.
0: The Vietnam War going, you have in the previous year, the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. There was the violence in Chicago outside the Democratic National Convention.
6: And the idea that music is free, cops are pigs. Uh, in the simplest terms. And it all came to a head on the second day of the festival. So how dare you charge for this? That was the idea. To some degree. I don't think that uh, anyone there had a problem with it, but this uh, professional leftist element outside. Uh, the Hard lines were drawn. The cops responded to their gate crashing with tear gas. They picked up rocks and threw firecrackers. The tear gas wafted inside the stadium. And that's when uh, all heck broke loose. People scrambling for cover. And one of the great uh, moments uh, of the day Great in the sense of it being a high point for Candy Gibbons' career. Candy was the lead singer for a band called Zephyr. Indeed, the yeah. first uh, band out of Colorado to have a national presence. She was Janis Joplin-esque, if you will. Tommy Bowen, the incredible guitarist, also a member of that group. The tear gas came in. Had Candy not managed the situation? It could have escalated into something much more historical in a bad
0: way. You interviewed David Gibbons of the
6: Boulder band Zephyr, uh, the lead singer,
0: Candy Gibbons, his wife. We were right in the middle of a song when the gas got to the stage and I had my eyes closed. I thought I was having a heart attack or something. I had no idea what this was. And then I opened my eyes and the people were just pouring down out of the stands. Candy really saved the day. The rest of us were just like kind of shocked And she just stepped up and said, okay, come on, calm down, it's cool We're all right, come on down on the field, sit down And she said, well, since we're already crying, let's do some blues And we did St. James Infirmary I went down to
2: the St. James
0: talk about being nimble as a
6: performer to start doing that. Uh, it sounds like there was more violence the last day of the festival, G Brown. Same confrontational atmosphere outside the stadium, again the tear gas wafting inside. This time, the crowd sought cover by going for the high ground, which was the stage. <laughs> so, oh. the Jimi Hendrix experience on stage and uh, everyone running around to the back of the stage area, in the outfield, if you would, in the stadium configuration, the stage again on the infield. And then uh, the band, uh, this is midway through their performance, knew they had to get out of there. They backed up a panel truck, put the band members inside, and the kids clamored all over it. I interviewed Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell, the rhythm section of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Uh, Over the years, they said they could hear the van collapsing on them with all of the concert goers piling on it, you know, seeking some sort of refuge. The truck took off. The hotel was half a mile away. When they arrived, there were still a few kids hanging on for wow. dear life. Oh my goodness.
0: Uh, well, there's actually some audio from the experience's performance. <laughs> The Jimi Hendrix Experience, recorded at the Denver Pop Festival, June 29th, 1969. We're talking to G Brown, Executive Director of the Colorado Music Experience. And, G, it turns out that uh, this was the final performance. For the group, Hendrix performed at Woodstock
6: two months later, but with a different band. He still had Mitch Mitchell on drums, but uh, he never performed with a solid group uh, to that point. Band of Gypsies was the one well-known with Billy Cox on bass, Buddy Miles on drums. And he had a a similar configuration. It was called Bands of Suns and Rainbows at Woodstock two uh, two months on.
0: But how interesting that Denver would be the final stop, in a way, for that original experience. The band had
6: knew they were breaking up without articulating it. There was a press conference that Sunday afternoon, and uh, someone asked Noel Redding about the band breaking up, and (laughs) that's how he heard about it. Maybe the tear gas was the last
0: straw. I don't know. (laughs) Barry Fay went on to promote many concerts in Colorado at the Denver Coliseum, Red Rocks, other venues. But it was several more years before he was allowed to put on shows at Mile High Stadium. I gather that has something to do with the violence. Tell us about this.
6: The city did not allow for the use of uh, their facilities, uh, uh, only the Denver Coliseum. Uh, until 1974. That is when Faye put on his first Sunday. That was how they build stadium shows in the 70s. Sunday number one was at Mile High, and he also did several at Folsom Field in Boulder. Was this a decade.
0: function of the violence? The city was just tired of that? or uh,
6: It was. Uh, there was the Jethro Tull incident that uh, followed in 1971, another tear gas slash riot circumstance, and the lines were drawn. Thanks for being with us. Always good to see you, Ryan. Thank you. G. Brown, Executive Director of the Colorado Music
0: Experience. The 3-day Denver Pop Festival began 50 years ago tonight at the old Mile High Stadium. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.